Nicole He is a creative technologist whose work lives in the space between video games, physical computing, and witty conceptual art. With experience advising projects for Kickstarter and imagining projects for Google, she's programmed artificial intelligence to converse with Billie Eilish for Vogue, physical sensors that help users swipe on a dating app, and a Twitter bot that regularly photographs her growing thick lip. As Nicole embarks on two long-term interactive projects, one is an arts-funded experimental game that uses voice technology, and the other is a commercial indie game, she finds herself more and more interested in immersing herself within the world of games. We speak with Nicole about what distinguishes the industry of video games and that of creative technology, the particularities of one's voice as a method to activate technology, and how behind every digital project is a living, breathing human. Nicole, how did you first get started into making things with computers? I went to NYU for undergrad and I studied journalism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I actually never wanted to be a journalist. I got a job right after college at Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. So that was my first job out of college and it was a great one. I was doing a lot of the things over the years there, but mostly sort of management related things and outreach and Kickstarter sort of exposed me to a lot of different creative communities in food, art, fashion and technology as well and games. My job was really to advise people on their Kickstarter projects. So yeah. talking to Kickstarter creators about their creative projects and telling them how to present them for an internet audience. And I had been working there for probably three years at this point, and I was thinking, my job is to help people make things, but actually maybe I want to make things. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know what those things are. Over the years, I had been exposed to this graduate program at NYU called ITP, which is sort of a master's program in Tisch about creative technology and other sorts of weird things. I had some coworkers who went there for grad school, and also I was just seeing people doing like weird shit, weird stuff with technology, really creative, strange things with it. Sometimes they had Kickstarter projects, so I was also exposed to that there. And I just felt like I really want to learn how to make things with technology. I didn't set out to become a programmer or anything mm. like that. The first thing that sort of drove me there, I think, was a Kickstarter we had, I think, maybe the first Killer Queen cabinet that was like out there in the world. So Killer Queen, as you I'm sure know, is um, an incredible 10 player arcade game. It's also now on Switch too, but originally it was an arcade game, five on five, 10 player cabinet. And we had one in the office. And the problem was the Kickstarter office had two floors. People worked upstairs and the Killer Queen cabinet was downstairs. And we were all obsessed with it. We wanted to play it all the time. But the problem was like telling people upstairs that somebody wanted to start a game of Killer Queen downstairs. And I was like, you know what we really need is a button that you can push that would notify people to come play Killer Queen. And I was like, it'd be great if somebody made that button and nobody wanted to. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll do it, but I have no idea how. Um, but one of my coworkers helped me set up an Arduino and taught me a little bit of physical computing and writing a tiny bit of code so that we eventually had this giant red button by the Killer Queen cabinet that you could push. And they would basically just tweet out from an account saying that people want to play Killer Queen. And then the Killer Queen heads at Kickstarter all followed that account and got the notification and came down to play. Um, and so I ended up going to ITP and immediately fell in love with programming. 
Hmm. which is not what I necessarily thought was going to happen. But as soon as I got there, I realized that coding was a tool for creative expression. It just felt like limitless, like I could do anything I wanted with it. And grad school is where I learned how to code. And I was always interested in making things that were playful, I think, were about technology. And I think through the process of being in school and doing essentially a lot of homework assignments, I, I started to, to notice a thread through my own projects about the themes that I guess I was interested in exploring that I didn't even necessarily realize until I started looking back at the types of projects that I would make. Is there a Kickstarter project that you saw? Because <laughs> you're on the community side also. And I think Kickstarter is interesting. There's so many great examples of people for whom this might be their first creative project and it's de-risking that portion of it, in part because you don't have to put the full thing out into the world. You're curious, are people even going to support me? But yeah. there's so many first-time creators on Kickstarter, much like yourself. Yeah, I think it was less about specific projects. And actually, my job involved a good amount of traveling and going to creative conferences for people in various creative fields. And there's one that stood out, which is when I went to IO in 2014. IO is one of the sort of renowned creative technology conferences, um, festivals. You know, my, my job going there was just to talk about Kickstarter and I didn't, I wasn't part of that community and I didn't know how to do any of the things that they were doing. And it felt like pure magic, like the types of things that people were doing there just felt like magic to me. And also made me think differently about the things that you can do with computers. After ITP, you started getting interested in the human voice. Obviously, programming is an enormous field. What was it about the human voice that really spoke to you? While I was at ITP, a lot of the projects that I did, my thesis there as well, were sort of text-based, like mm. a lot of sort of generative text type of stuff, you know, really inspired by Alison Parrish, who was one of my professors at ITP. And when I graduated, I got a job at Google Creative Lab, and they brought me on because they were interested in doing some experiments with their voice assistant, Google Home. Right, um, And yep. they were just sort of like, well, you've done some stuff with text, and it feels like quite a, like a related thing, because actually, I mean, which is true. I mean, having the computer generate text is sort of the first step towards having the computer talk to you. So they're like, why don't you come and just try to do some stuff with it? And that's how I got started with it. I, and I'm glad because I, I think it's not an easy technology to get into just because it's locked down and very corporate in terms of most of the technology that's available. Uh, you know, when you think about voice technology, you think about Alexa or Siri or Google Home most of the time. And that's that technology is not the first thing that comes to mind for a creative coder to use because, again, it's very platform specific for these big companies. But my introduction was through that way. And I quickly also found it to be a really fascinating medium to make creative work. And I was interested in the character of a computer or like the character of an AI in people's popular imaginations. When an AI, in quotes, tells you to do something or says something, there's like this sense of authority that people <laughs> ascribe to it because it's a computer. But the thing that's interesting about voice in particular is that you can't help but personify a voice. When you right. hear someone talking, when, even if it has a very computerized sounding voice, your brain can't help but imagine who that is and start projecting things onto that entity. And that's really fascinating to me. And I felt like there was a lot of creative potential in interactions and in games 
games and things like that with talking to that kind of character. And I was always interested in what it feels like to talk to who you know is a computer. Yeah. And of course, there's like the decision by the creators to give them human-ish names, Alexa, Siri. Female uh, human names. Female, female, of course, female Cortana, whether it's interrogated or it's unlikely, it's not particularly interrogated. But the decision to say like, oh, this needs to have a human voice versus like Amazon voice bot number one, you know, 1.0. When you're creating things and you're because you're leaning into a point of view that people have about like interactions with like voice technology. How does that influence your process as a creator when you start wanting to to make things? Because you're observing that as like, oh, people interact with technology in this particular way. I can create things that play to that natural interaction. How does that reality impact the things that you actually ultimately make? Yeah, one thing that I'm really interested in creatively is people's expectations about technology and how it works. The difference between those expectations, usually informed by science fiction, and how the technology actually works. <laughs> so definitely knowing people have certain ideas already about the technology that we're using to make something absolutely goes into my creative process. Also because, especially when you're working with voice technology, you're essentially designing a character. When you make a computer talk, you're making a character talk. And there's two sides to it, right? For voice technology, there is the text-to-speech, which is the computer talking, and there's the speech-to-text, which is you talking and then the computer trying to capture what you're saying and then doing things to respond. I think both, actually having both of those things really impacts the way that people experience the project because it's and it's not just the hearing the computer talk, mm. it's the fact that you are actually using your voice to communicate with the computer also has a pretty big difference compared to how we normally interact with computers and also therefore has a different impact on how we think about the computer that we are talking to. I'm always thinking about that when I'm doing voice stuff. I think it and part of the part of it is that is there's a lot of actual technical limitations like voice technology is not that good. <laughs> um, it's I mean it's quite bad in a lot of ways. On again, on both sides, um, but especially the speech recognition stuff is quite bad. And so you also have to design around that sort of setting expectations is a big part of that as well. I have Alexa in the house and the extent to which I had to you know, modify my speech to what it hears is was something I cognitively I have to like actually think about what I want it to do. And it's not like a person in that way. And then once I learn it, then I've memorized that string of things I need to tell it. And then that becomes a way that I signal it. Again, I think the expectations from science fiction are. <laughs> but I think the other thing that's sort of interesting is also the opposite, which is that, for example, as you said, you have learned how to talk to Alexa you learn that you have to say things in a certain way for it to understand you. So part of the things in the projects that I'm making is, is also actually subverting those expectations by designing something that maybe can actually give you the illusion, at least, of understanding you in a way that these voice assistants out in the world don't. Yeah. Do you feel like your work in voice has impacted like, what you hear out in the world? I mean, I definitely pay attention to chatbots or when somebody is saying that an AI said this <laughs> or did this. I think my experience in this stuff has definitely made me think about what that means, like what they actually mean differently. Yeah. Uh, I think it's just, this is true for 
probably anybody that works with any type of AI technology, you realize just how much human effort goes into this stuff. It's like basically run by humans. Every single part of it, whether the labor is invisible and outsourced or not, there is just computer programs run by people. But the thing you notice is that when people talk in the abstract about like computer programs written by engineers versus AI, they think about those things very differently. (laughs) When I hear about people talking about AI, doing something or saying something on its own. I think about that differently. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think we definitely live in a moment where there are like certain technologies that are imbued with this, that sense of magic that you alluded to. I think AI is definitely one of them. Machine learning, maybe VR to maybe to a like a lesser extent. It is interesting. It's all programming at the end of the day, but certain things are perceived to be more, I don't know, mystical like you're conjuring something special than than other things working in like finance or something like that it's all done with computers um one of the things that we've been asking people about is just their process in terms of like actually creating things i I wanted to ask about i guess since we've been talking about voice um the billy eilish project that you worked on for vogue you can tell me a little bit about that specific project and specifically the creative side of it like how did you sit down and figure out like what you ultimately you know wanted to do Sure. So that project really came from Vogue. They had this idea of doing an AI interview with a celebrity for a while. I think they had pitched it to various celebrities and nobody took them up on it until we <laughs> And I respect her for that. The AI was trained on all the interview questions that people have asked Billie Eilish over the years. We collected all the publicly available interview questions that have ever been asked, and I used that to fine-tune GPT-2 to come up with a list of new interview questions, and then they selected some and asked them to her as the AI. We also took all the Billie Eilish lyrics and fine-tuned the model to generate new Billie Eilish lyrics. And obviously these data sets are very small Um, and the results were predictably weird, which is part of what they were looking for. Billy really took it seriously and she answered the weird questions very thoughtfully. But my favorite thing about that project was at the end of the video, she says, you know, I really appreciated these questions coming from the AI because Usually when human interviewers ask me questions, the first of all, they ask me the same questions over and over. The second of all, they're trying to get something from me. Like they're trying yeah. to get me to say something that yeah. you know, would get them clicks or views or whatever. But the AI doesn't have that kind of motivation. It's not biased like humans, which I thought was incredible. Because it's like, <laughs> you know, in AI, we're always talking about how AI is biased, which is true. But this was sort of an example where it felt like she felt the opposite, which is that humans are biased and the AI wasn't. So pure. (laughs) So earnest. It just wants to know the answers. I guess we're in this like liminal period where I think we're still amused by or surprised by machine learning. But I guess, you know, ultimately the goal is something like much more, I guess, in theory, if Vogue came to you, it was like, oh, we want to have an AI ask Billie Eilish. In theory, shouldn't the goal be for Billie Eilish to have the same response, you know, as she would to a human interviewer at the end of the day. Like, we're computing this, like, weirdness on the machine. Yeah, again, it's the same thing about the character of the AI. Like, if a person asked her these questions, it would be weird. Like, I think one of the questions was, like, who consumed so much of your power in one go? Mm. (laughs) Which would be a weird question for somebody to ask. But because 
the AI, I think she calls it Mr. AI at some point, <laughs> is the one that asks that question. It changes the whole meaning of the whole thing. Yeah, and I guess also because it's not a human, like if you asked Billie Eilish that question, she would follow up and say, I'm not sure what you mean. Yeah. Can you rephrase the question? Um, you know, for Enhanced Computer, like for that project, that has more of an explicit game attitude or feel or whatever you want to call it. What was the impetus for starting that project? And how do you see this like kind of fitting into the larger body of work that you've pursued at this point? Yeah, so Enhanced Art Computer was a commission for an exhibition I did in Melbourne in 2018. I had been thinking about that sci-fi trope where people in a movie or TV show are looking at a computer, looking at a screen, and they're like, zoom in, enhance. And then th it just does that. <laughs> Usually they're like investigating something. I mean, I, Blade Runner is a classic example, but I think also like the police shows do that a lot. And it makes sense why they do it in movies because uh, it's boring to see somebody clicking around on a computer. <laughs> it makes more sense for somebody to say things out loud for that dramatic effect. And it's really funny. There's a really good like supercut on YouTube of a bunch of examples of this, but sometimes they're like rotate the the image yeah. 180 degrees and the image just like, rotates. It, so it's absurd. But I just I was thinking about how that is a trope that a lot of people are familiar with and it would be interesting to try to actually build that and see what happens. And so the game says that you're a detective and someone's about to commit a crime and you have to look for a secret code in an image. Uh, and say that code out loud. And it's a game in the browser. And so it just shows you a picture and there's like a secret four letter code somewhere in the picture and you have to say zoom in or enhance or move left or right and things like that. And what is really interesting about that game to me is that predictably doesn't work that well. I mean, it does work, it does work. You can win the game. It's not that hard necessarily, but at the same time, you can see the places where the speech recognition fails a lot. And, you know, for example, the four letter code is just like a random string of letters, uh, but sometimes you get like the letters J and Z next to each other. But if you say Jay-Z, it'll always get it as the, the artist Jay-Z, and that is the input. So it, I think it's actually impossible to win if Jay-Z is in your code because uh, it'll never recognize that you're trying to say the letters J and Z, which is just, a, a I think, a really incredible distillation of the whatever model they use to train for this uh, speech recognition system. That's just the built-in Chrome Web Speech API. And it really reveals that distance, again, that I was talking about between our expectations of the technology that we've seen in movies and how it actually works. And so yeah. it reveals that quite nicely. And this project is more leaning on both sides of my work right now. My creative technology really voice centered turd work and then now my newer ongoing like video game work but yeah these days i'm working more on games is there a particular reason why i, I mean a part of reason i ask is one of the things i think is really interesting having been in and about the game space for the last 15 years is how much more democratic like i'm seeing games pop up as part of a larger body of work that someone pursues in the same way that you'd make lots of other things with creative technology why not make a game whereas i feel like in the past it was kind of either or you either were a game maker or you were an artist or you know you made digital art or whatever it might be but games there's this divide between the two so i was curious how you see game making fitting into like your larger practice as it were there are a couple very 
specific reasons why I am now focusing on game development. And one reason is that just in thinking about the two industries, you know, we have creative technology is one industry, I guess, and then games, or let's say specifically indie games is another industry. The, the way that people make money is very different. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah. it affects the things that you make. And so the way that people make money in games versus in creative technology are very different. Like the industries are different. So in creative tech, the thing about it is that it's largely advertising money. Basically, a company like Samsung will give you money to make a cool interactive experience for them or something like that. The people who say work as creative technologists yeah. do this type of work at studios or maybe in-house somewhere where essentially you might be doing cool stuff with cool new technology that is ultimately meant for marketing purposes for right. a deep pocketed company. And in terms of being a person that works in this kind of thing, it's probably more stable job compared to a lot of, say, indie game developers. But it, yeah, but it affects the kind of work that you are able to do. I mean, a lot of people have their own artistic practice on the side as well. Yeah, yeah. Which makes sense. But compared to games, when people make games, indie games, they are making products. And there are certainly downsides to that in terms of you, know, you have to make, if you want to make money off of a game that you're making, you have yeah. to make it appealing to people because they're going to spend money on it. Uh, and also, obviously, it's a risk because in terms of like how healthy the working practices are, it's not necessarily good either because a lot of times people will spend years making working on something that never makes any money whatsoever, which is bad. However... <laughs> <laughs> Of course, you still have to, you do have to appeal to the whims of the market when you're making games. Yeah. But on the other hand, you're not making advertisements for big companies. And so there's different types of things that you're able to do. And one thing I really noticed doing creative technology work, you know, you make like interactive experiences and, you, and people look at it and they're like, oh, cool, that's really cool. And then they leave. And the question is like, how do you get somebody to engage with your interactive experience for more than like two minutes? Right. And you call it a video game and that's how you do it. <laughs> um, even if it's the same thing. I, I am like these days working, I'm working on two different games. And these are long-term projects, which is actually also new for me because um, a lot of the projects like in my portfolio and things like that, yeah. most of them are very small, short projects that I spent say weeks on, um, but now I'm spending years on projects. Two projects in particular, and one is an experimental art game that has like arts funding that uses voice technology actually. And then the other is a commercial indie game, which is a new thing for me, but it's also really fun to work on, but completely different. So that's the reason why I'm interested in games right now as a medium. Oh, and the other, okay. The other thing is that as bad as it is in games, there is a culture of criticism, critique, review in games, which we don't have in creative technology. I think for a lot of <laughs> yeah. reasons, one of which is probably it's newer. The, the other thing is, again, most of the time you're making advertisements. There are awards for things like that, but in games you have actual awards, you have criticism, and I, I want that for my yeah. work moving forward. That's interesting. I, you know, I hadn't thought about the critique part. It's true in so many mediums, like the, the role of criticism has been really helpful in terms of developing a field. And yeah, it's true with creative technologists. You're not going to get 
written up, you know, by art critics. They don't review it because they don't really understand it or just it's out of the mainstream. For creative technology, probably with some rare exceptions of like a piece that's in the new museum or something. First of all, you pay for games. So when you play a game, most of the time you paid for it the way that you paid for a movie or a book. Um, and so I think people are already decided that they're going to invest time and energy into this thing, which is super different from other types of like creative technology experiences where they might like click on it from Twitter and look at it and be like, oh, that's cool. Yeah. But then, but that's it. We interviewed Cassie McCater, who's an artist here in Los Angeles. And one of the things that she said that stuck with me is that like people's willingness to be confused in an art context is much higher than it is in a game context. So when she would show Black Room in more formal gallery contexts, people were willing to sit with it. But then when she would show it at like Indiecade or something where people were expecting to play video games, they're like, I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on. And so that seems like a real challenge in terms of trying to bridge the gap between those two spaces where the audience that is going to understand games in a more, I describe as a more natural, like their literacy is going to be very high because they play lots of video games and they're thinking about it in that context. But their literacy around art and culture may not be as developed as the literacy around games. And so how are you bridging that gap as kind of someone who's conversant in both of those spaces. I think that's a really good point. And I guess the way I'm doing it is by working on two games. <laughs> One, which is an I guess explicitly an arts game that will be free to play and getting to do that stuff creatively on that end, probably taking a lot more risks in terms of the things that can go wrong in that game uh, and things that are unusual versus the commercial indie game that I am working on. That I mean, we're still in early stages, but approaching that very differently. <laughs> that is going to yeah. be a more a traditional video game without those types of things and I guess separating them out into two different projects that have different different funding things and different audiences probably I yeah. guess is the way that I'm doing it right now I'm sure it has a big difference depending on the context in which people see something yeah and I think also just like with games in particular like the distribution context unlike a lot of other mediums have natural biases towards certain types of experiences in a way that I don't think people distinguish between, say, like SoundCloud and Bandcamp and Spotify in terms of maybe with Bandcamp a little bit, because I think there's an expectation that that's a place for independent music. But certainly with the larger ones, there's kind of like, oh, this is a neutral distribution. Pl it's not neutral, but like it's a neutral distribution platform where I go and express my taste through it versus like in gaming, you're getting it through Xbox Game Pass or Steam or something like that. The communities there are biased towards certain types of experience. You know, if you do stuff with mobile, there's a similar expectation there. People, everything's free, so people don't like to pay for stuff. And so there are these unusual biases that sometimes cloud the audiences. It, it informs the way that what their expectations are going into it. So. It's interesting because I don't think I've thought about this explicitly before, but it's true that the thing that I'm making that I hope would maybe be on like the Nintendo Switch is very different from yeah. the thing that I'm making that is going to be released uh, on the web for free. And there are upsides and downsides to both of those things, both of the possibilities of both projects. And they're very different. There's like limitations. There's definitely things I could do on the web that I couldn't do for that commercial project, yeah. but vice versa as well. So a lot of it is being aware about the platform and the, the audience and the projects are super different, but at the same time, I don't feel like I'm a different person working on both of yeah. them. You just get to exercise different things. I think one of the intellectual challenges for independent game makers is that there are these counterfactuals in that like someone makes a small personal thing 
and it makes a ton of money. Stardew Valley is a great example of that, or you know, any of Lambeer's work, like that's all. There are these counterfactual examples where someone does the small thing. I think what ends up happening a lot of times is that like you end up having creators who are functionally making artistic games that should be sold not for $5, but should be sold for $5,000. It should be sold as art, but the expectation is like, oh, I'm going to put it up and it's going to sell. And then there's a mismatch there. So I think it is healthy to say that like, these are different things in the same way that like Barry Jenkins is directing the new Lion King movie, but also has done Moonlight. Like yeah. I think he has yeah. an understanding like there's going to be different audiences there. They're different sides of the same creative field, but I have different expectations. Like, you know, you're not going to expect an A24 film to do as well as one that's funded by Disney, you know? So, I think like yeah. Zach Gage does a, a good yeah. job of this as well in his work as a conceptual artist, but also as a game maker. Yeah, yeah being highly aware of the platform and the audience and the types of possibilities and limitations of each yeah. thing. I do wonder if some of it has to do with location as well. Like, I do find that like game makers coming out of New York because there's not a commercial game development scene in New York City do often have a different perspective because you know, there isn't a big game developers conference or you can't go work for like EA or because yeah. I see that here in LA yeah. they're independent game designers that they try and do their own thing for a while and then they're like oh I'm just gonna go work for Riot or I'm just gonna yeah. go work for EA and I get that. That makes sense. In New York, that's not an option for you, right? Like, if you want to make games, right? You could, but you can always go into advertising or something else and creative technology. Oh, well, the last thing I wanted to ask you about is you have a couple different projects. I'm thinking of the SMS bot that enables people to create new things. And I was curious about like that, that project in particular, like you're building a tool for someone else to create something. And uh, yeah, I was curious, like how you see that sort of like fitting into your larger body of work. I would like to do more of that kind of stuff. So that project is about, it's a Google Doc tutorial that tells you how to create an SMS bot using Google Sheets, essentially. So you don't have to code your own. And the purpose of it was that anybody, but hopefully in particular, say mutual aid groups or anybody else who needs to communicate with the community and collect information via SMS can do it without a lot of technical resources. The purpose of the SMS bot project explicitly is for other people to use it. I have another project, which is actually quite a little bit outdated, but also the idea was that people would like possibly do it as well, which is my grow slow uh, plant yeah. project, uh, which is open source, but I need to, again, I need to update that. And also actually I've learned through teaching. I taught a class two years ago at ITP and I'm teaching it again, starting in a month about voice technology. And I found a lot of joy actually in the process of say, creating examples to teach in class and then having the students take those examples and then learn from it and make their own thing as well, which I think is very satisfying. And I think a lot of that comes from, yeah, definitely more of the, say the creative technology side, which is, I guess, a lot more just the basic technical stuff and giving people those tools to make their own thing is really satisfying. I would like to do more of that with some of my smaller projects. A lot of that is as simple as open sourcing, but I have also found more of that satisfaction in the process of teaching. This podcast was produced by me, Jamin Warren, along with some help from Alex Westfall and music from Lucene. If you like what you heard, please subscribe from your favorite podcasting app. And if you would like to see some wonderful photos of Nicole and her space, you can also check that out at killscreen.com or follow us on at killscreen on Twitter and your favorite social media platforms.